0: You're listening to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Show, a podcast to inspire physicians in the process of immigration to the United States and access to graduate medical education. We create meaningful and helpful content that motivates medical students and doctors throughout the world, with the goal of creating a community that supports itself and gives feedback to each other, that stays updated with the most recent tips and advice on how to make it in America Also, we'll analyze the current resources available and how to benefit from them. Thanks for joining us. Please enjoy the show.
1: Hi, guys. Welcome back to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Alonso Osorio. And as you know, life has to go on and I have to keep producing material for you guys. That's despite the fact that I lost my job. But guess what? I found another job and life goes on. I have to keep feeding my family, paying the bills the mortgage the school tuition for my kids and nothing bad has happened we're just going to keep happy stay positive and and be proud so we have today Dr. Omar Cardenas who is a board certified residency trained physician in internal medicine and that I've been working closely actually Dr. Cardenas doesn't know this and probably I don't know if I told you before, but I think uh, even when I was a resident, I was putting out calls for physicians in the community to discuss my clinical cases in the emergency department. And I think several calls I put out about 11, 12, 13 years ago from Tampa General to speak about your patients. And I did the same with many of your colleagues in Bay Area hospitals, Dr. Martin Sokol, Dr. Douglas McFadden. And, you know, it's really funny that after 11 years that I've been out there from residency training now. We're treating each other like colleagues, not, not like the same relationship that we used to have from resident to attending physician. But, you know, the world is small and right. here we are. So thank you for taking some time of your personal busy life to be with us and to share your life story with our huge community of foreign medical grads. Dr. Cardenas, I'm going to tell you, you're being listened in more than 70 countries across the world. We have reached almost 7,000 downloads in 29 episodes, and I'm extremely exotic, ecstatic about this because we're generating free online medical education and free content that is not only educational but motivational, and that's why you're here. And I want to talk, and I might dig into this deeper as we go along, about you and Cuba because I know Cuba is a very difficult country to get out of and leave it's not like i'm leaving colombia and there you go off you go and and you know you cross the border and you're in another country but cuba has a lot of political and historical implications of migratory processes into other countries and the united states itself so with all that having been said dr cadenas anything else you want to tell us about yourself and welcome
2: Well, first of all, uh, Dr. Osorio, I am very appreciative of your opportunity, your invitation to let me speak my story. Yeah, we've all had very, very difficult times to reach this point. And and I had a very particular, you know, a collection of incidents and difficulties that brought me here. And, you know, and I, yeah, I can share that with all our audience if if they're interested.
1: So Dr. Cardenas- went to the Superior Institute of Medical Science in La Universidad de La Habana, in Cuba, and he was top 10 percentile of his class in 1980. And then from Uh. 1989 to 1991, he became a doctor in medicine and general surgery at La Universidad Complutense de Madrid, Complutense University in Madrid, Spain. And he graduated in 1991, obtaining his medical diploma, and then coming back, to the United States and becoming a diplomat and board certified in internal medicine. Tell us about your life and and how you ended up here in America.
2: All right. Well, it all started, you know, I I grew up in communist Cuba, totally under the system. I was born just two years prior to Castro's, uh, you know, the the evolution of Cuba and our revolution. And uh, so I grew up in that system and very, you know, a lot of tight control over people and being learning to be careful with uh, what we said and what we did, and education being very controlled, all the things that we already know. The particular issues were that in Cuba, the military is compulsory. Every male has to participate unless you're exempted because you're doing university studios or something like that. And so I was in the... Um, You know, I I went through high school, middle school, all that and then went to medical school. It's six years in Cuba, so I I we were wanting to leave the country for many years. My father was against the revolution and I grew up with that idea. I avoided participating in all their political associations and you know, there there were all my many of my classmates were you know, kind of snitching on each other because that was the system. That was the way it was, and you had to be careful. You know, there's a lot of details. My father was an electronics mechanic. We had a color TV like nobody else did, and that was held against me because we were watching foreign channels to be able to grab color because there was no color television in Cuba. But anyway, we decided that we wanted to leave Cuba. My first wife's uh, father was in the United States. He started doing paperwork and trying to bring us over. But I couldn't leave Cuba because I was a young male in the university. If I wanted to leave, they wouldn't let me go. Or the worst would be I would have to serve in the military. So we started looking around for possibilities, what to do. And we found a friend of ours that knew a nurse in a psychiatric hospital. And uh, we said, you know, is there any possibilities? He said, well, yes, if you pay me some money, I will get you in there. I will get him, he told my parents, and I'll keep him three days and bring him out with a certificate of insanity of some kind. Wow. We said, "All, all right, let's go for it. We paid him the money, and we decided on a day, and we showed up at the hospital with my parents and my wife, and uh, we walked into the emergency room and asked for him. And they said, "No, he doesn't work here anymore. He left the country." So we walked back to the parking lot, and you know what to do. And I was a young medical student, fourth year, and I said, "You know, I was braver at that time and um, less wise. Even though, on the long run, it it worked for all of us." And I said, "No, we're going back in, and I'm going to pretend." who have a very severe depression, and wow. I shut down. They walked me in, and I was admitted for depression. It was tough. They put me on an unclassified ward where there were all the crazy people. I had to put my shoes under the legs of the bed so they wouldn't take them away. And, uh, I mean, I remember walking in the backyard the next morning with all of them in line, and they would, they would poop as they walked. And we were supposed to, I mean, I was depressed. I, I wasn't supposed to care. So I had kind of Dutch. the things that were coming at me as not, you know, not show too much intention because I was supposed to be, you know, kind of not, not caring for life.
1: Well, well anyways. So, so what you're saying is that to be able to get out of Cuba, you submitted yourself to be a psychiatric patient.
2: Absolutely.
1: And you checked yourself in. Faking a faking depressive symptoms. Faking. We didn't say depressed, right? We didn't say that I
2: was a medical student, and they had very bad bureaucracy at that time, so they couldn't tell. We said that I was a construction worker, and so I was interviewed by a very old psychiatrist. He, he would see me every day, would ask me questions. We hadn't done the rotation through psychiatry, so no. I really had no clue. How you're supposed to draw a butterfly when you are profoundly demented? You know, they made me do those things, and I was like, "How do I do this?" I had to answer very slowly. At the time, Cuba had a very straight, very classical, you know, indication for electroconvulsive therapy. Wow! Electroshocks, and it was if you had hallucinations, they would shock you, and if you didn't, they wouldn't. And so, of course, me, in my slow language, in my slow, um, you know, without showing any emotion, I would say no, that I had no, none of that. I had, you know, things, and I would have fear of heights, and my father was maybe, you know, uh, conspiring against me, all that, but no hallucinations. And um, But my parents had no knowledge of that, so they were interviewed, and they you know to make things worse they were like yeah he sees things all the time <laughs> so i was closed very they were closed not helping, huh? <laughs> exactly so anyway i stayed there for 13 days which were terrible because i got to the point where i wasn't even sure if i was really you know faking all this or my parents had actually put me there because i was really crazy you know, because you get this really coming at you every single day. There were singers and there were all the famous, there was a Superman, there were cops, you know, crazy people having this type of schizophrenic illusions and stuff. So anyway, they signed me out at 13 days and the psychiatrist said, well, you can take him home, but he's got... Schizoid personality, early schizophrenia. You can take him home now, but he's going to live here all his life. What? You're going to have to bring him back. So we went home with the certificate of schizophrenia, and then we proceeded to continue the paperwork. You know, of course, I was doubtful for days. You know, is this real? But, I mean, was I really or am I really going to be you know, a psychiatric patient the rest of my life? But anyway... Came to the point where we were, I was expelled from medical school when I requested a paper for immigration because they say, we don't give you papers. We don't give you letters. We expelled. So they fired me from medical school. They fired me from language school. I had already finished English and I was doing French. They fired me because a friend of mine said that I was leaving or trying to leave. But anyway... At that time, not to make the story too long, at that time, there was an incident in Havana that historically is very significant that some workers were close to the Peruvian embassy, to the fence of the Peruvian embassy, and they jumped the fence. I think it was 10, 13 people, and they requested asylum in the embassy. This created a little scandal. Castro got really angry and explosive as he is. He said he would pull the guards from the front of the embassy. So he did. So the embassy was on guarded for a day and a few hours, and ten thousand people marched into the embassy. Ten thousand. Without internet, without television, given the news. This was just word of mouth. So anyway, this created an international scandal. It was the Peruvian Embassy scandal of Havana in March or so of nineteen eighty. This you know, went over internationally and countries started, you know, forcing Cuba to do something with this because it created a humanitarian situation. People were peeing on each other. They were throwing tools at each other. I mean, it was horrendous. 10,000 people within the perimeter of a embassy, which was a small yard. Yeah, But anyway, so... The, uh, the thing escalated, Peru decided to take some of them, uh, Spain, I think, some other countries took some of them, and Castro said, whoever wants to come and get their people from the U.S., you can just come down to the Mariel port next to Havana, and so thousands of people went there on boats, it was a Mariel boat lift, Wow! and I remember. he would let people go on the condition that they would take also people from you know psychiatric hospitals and jails
1: so, so this so was criminal or mentally ill
2: criminals or mentally ill and so if you've seen the movie scarface he is one of the he plays a role of of a, a patient who is in, in not a patient he's a he's a guy in jail and they put him on a boat and send him over tony montana so We came on a boat as family members that they put us down below, requested by our family members in the U.S., and then on top they put all these criminals and people with scars and, you know, all like that. We were all terrified down below. But as the boat, it was a beautiful sailboat, 58 feet, and as we started sailing and that thing started waving with the wind, everybody got sick and started vomiting and puking. We got to Key West. And uh, you couldn't even tell who was a, uh, you know, a convict, who was a family member. I mean, there was even people who died, supposedly a baby died from lack issue of nutrition and, you know, dehydration and all that. But we arrived 16 hours later to uh, Key West.
1: That was a one-way ticket that that Fidel Castro gave to you all. Absolutely. Historically, it's been the El Mariel, you know, the incident. El Marielle. Mariel, is that created
2: a, a huge problem in Miami because of so many, so many criminals coming in at the same time. So it was 117,000 people. So that, and most of them went to Miami. Of course, they started killing people and little mm-hmm. ladies and, and stealing and robbing. So uh, the reputation of the Mariel or Marielitos, as they used to be known, was, you know, we, people would take a step back whenever they, they heard that you were one of them. But anyway, so I saw myself with family, my wife and, and her sister in Miami, medical school. And no, you know, her family helped us at first. So I got a job at Intimates Bakery, a big bakery used to be. Now it's a little bit smaller. And I learned to be a mechanic of the packing lines. And I worked as a mechanic, a painter a parts room supervisor and all that for nine years in
1: Miami. No way. So, Dr. Cárdenas, to summarize what you have gone through, it's like you want to get out of the country, you're halfway through medical school, and you say... The only way to get out here is through this lady that told me that if I pay her some money, she'll get me into a psychiatric hospital. It was a guy. Yeah. It was a guy. You got into a psychiatric hospital. You were this far away, about an inch from being uh, given electroconvulsive therapy. Right. And after 13 days, you're deemed to be an schizophrenic, a schizoaffective uh, diagnosis type of patient. And you go and get the certificate that you're mentally ill for that reason. And the country wanted to get rid of like any socialist country or like the Germans did. They wanted to get rid of the mentally ill or the violence and they emptied the jails and they got rid mm-hmm. of the mentally ill people and you were one of them. So they put you in the boat with the criminals. You were at the bottom, they were at the top and you made it in, into Key West in Miami, right? Yeah. In Miami. Wow, that's crazy! I never heard anything like that. It crazy, it is crazy, and there's a lot of small details there. How I,
2: you know, could get that certificate to work? We had to, you know, do some maneuvering. Eventually, we were stationed before leaving in this boat. We were one night in a facility that was close to the water. And we went into the water because I didn't want to come to the United States with a certificate like that, uh, you know, because it wasn't real. It was, you know, and I was worried that this would affect my future. So we made a hole. We sat at the beach, made a hole in the sand, and we buried the certificate, <laughs> which might have float ashore one of these, time, these days in the past. But
1: anyway. So you, you were for nine years, then you became, you work in this uh, factory. I work as an industrial
2: mechanic. Painter, everything. The main answer. suffering and hearing I, uh, stories about my friends in Cuba becoming gynecologists and this and that. And I was there. So eventually we sent my papers to Spain. I have so, family in so, Spain. So that, is,
1: that explains the gap in between 1980 and 1989. But, Absolutely. And, and let me say something, Dr. Cardenas. Obviously, you have a very moving story, and I see some tears coming over your eyes at the very beginning of the <laughs> show when you were bringing this up because it's not easy to live in life. But for our applicants, they're always worried about how they're going to explain their gaps. And you're explaining a gap that you're using for political reasons and personal reasons. You only want it to become better. And that's, that's what people have to understand, that we immigrants that really want to make something happen for ourselves, we need sometimes go through the impossible to accomplish our dreams. And the only reason why you pretended to be crazy is because you just wanted something better for you, yourself, and your family, correct?
2: There was no other way for me to leave. I would have Had they known I was a medical student, they wouldn't have let me go because medical school is free in Cuba in quotes. But you do medical school uh, on the condition that you're going to serve the country, wherever they send you, whatever they put you. And even if you want to leave the country, you have to serve as a physician for, I, I think it's two or three years. And they might even send you uh, abroad.
1: Yeah, I heard people I that were sent to Bhutan, you know, and socialist countries across the world, Russia, et cetera. It's, a, it's, yeah. a, it's,
2: it's another story. They charge other countries a lot of money. They pay the doctors very little. They make money on this apparent humanitarian uh, thing done by Cuba, which is absolutely not. It's it's a farce. But anyway, so 1989, I finally get my approval from the University of Complutense in Madrid to go and rejoin uh, pretty much where I had left off. You know, they accepted my credits from Havana. I used to, modesty aside, I used to be a good student, so I had good credits, good numbers, and they accepted all those classes. And they said, okay, you got to do one physics from first year, uh, something from third, part of four, the whole fifth, and the whole sixth year. So that was total of three, maybe three and a half years I had to do that. And we didn't have enough money. We sold a house. My son at the time, was four years old, was now 35. And um, we sold house, everything. We collected as much as we could, and we moved to Madrid, where my family, you know, helped me locate and everything, but we had to do it ourselves pretty much. And it was shocking. I thought I had made a mistake. They said I had made a mistake. They said, you know, Cubans or Latin American people are not liked over here. They're not going to take you well. They're yes. going to make you fail.
1: And my, my father used to be called Sudaka from being from Sudamérica. Sudaka, Sudaka,
2: Sudamerican. They called Sudaka. Cuban, they don't see that much in that light. But still, my family said they, they're going to screw you. But just like that. And, you know, we, we had a moment, you know, where my wife and I, we, we cried. We cried. We said we made a mistake. We saw my son sleeping on the floor in a hostel in Madrid, with a bathroom for all the rooms. You know, we had to share a bathroom and everything. So it, it was it was tough. But I cramped up, and I started doing the best I could, only studying, no working, nothing. We're living off the money, the little money we got. We got an apartment. We settled down. And, um, and I did it. I did it in not only all of it, but I did it in two years. A year and 10 months, I got all the credits I needed. And I graduated. Wow. And then and we, we didn't even wait a month. We came back to the States, rushing back, you know, to do something. But then the next obstacle was the diploma from Spain. La- took almost three years. So I couldn't. I lost the residency in a very good program in Philadelphia because I, I didn't have my, my diploma.
1: So, so, so for our listeners, as you can imagine, if to this day... We struggle in getting our credentials verified by our foreign medical schools that we have the internet and faxes and email and everything and everything is super fast and takes milliseconds and we still struggle. And I'm going to tell you, I'm struggling because they told me my credential at the new hospital where I'm going to work, it won't happen until September 16th. And they said that the problem is because I'm a foreign medical graduate and obtaining certifications of education from my medical school in Colombia is going to take a long time. Come on, we're in 2020. Imagine how it had to be for you. It took you three years to get information across the ocean from Spain to be sent to the United States. Exactly. At least
2: they let me, I, I brought some papers, and that allowed me to do the exams at the time. And at the time, it was not USMLE. It Complex? ECFMD. Okay. Uh, yeah, exam for foreign medical graduates. ECFMG. So I did my ECFMG one e c f and G two passed them both, and the third exam was called Flex and I decided to wait and I said, well you know i'm here. I was working at Kendall Regional Hospital in miami wow. as a surgical assistant, which was tough because you know they, they the the surgeons sometimes don't treat you the best, you know you are helping them and holding the retractor so but eventually we became friends, and it was a learning experience, enough for me not to become a surgeon. You know, I learned not to be a surgeon with that experience. But then I did my two exams, decided to wait on the flex, and then suddenly they canceled those exams. They said, no more ecf and From now on, and that came really as a surprise, from now on is USMLE 1, 2, and 3. And I said, oh, my God, but I already have one and two. No, no acceptance of that. you got to do them again. What? So I did USMLE 1, USMLE 2, passed them, then finally got a residency in Episcopal Hospital in Philadelphia. And uh, between first year and second year, I think it was, I did my USMLE 3, got it, and then finished residency finally in 1997 about 20 years after I started medical school.
1: Wow. He goes to tell you that nothing is impossible. I have so many people that give up on the attempts and the process of becoming successful physicians, and they give up just, oh, they say, they come to me and they tell me, oh, doctor, I lost a step one once, and I passed a step two, and I have very good scores. I feel my life is coming to an end. I said, come on, guys. Look at Dr. Cardenas. What he has had the need to go through, he took, you know, yeah. the ECFMG-1, the 2, and then the, didn't take the flex. And then he's told that suddenly we're starting over with the USMLE Step 1 and Step 2 and Step 3. And he has to do it all over again, guys. So this little hiatus that we're having with the COVID and the USMLE Step 1, 2, and 3 and the CS, is not a big deal when we really compare it to other huge proportions of situations that people have to deal with. You went to Episcopal Hospital, you obtained your... Residency program, and specialty training in internal medicine. Twenty years after having had graduated yep. from medical school in Cuba. I wow! Started actually in
2: 1976. I graduated 77, so it was uh, 97. So it was 21 years after I started medical school. Yeah, I know. Impressive. But uh, you know, it is what it is. I got my dream. The end of the story, well, you know, I was in Philly. I worked there for years and attending in the same hospital. I taught the residents the little I knew. And then eventually uh, there was no job for me there anymore. And uh, I couldn't find a job, couldn't find a job. And even try the jails and nobody, you know, there was no work for me. as I had to start a practice or something. So I eventually found a job in, in Florida. A small town here called uh, Clewiston. I don't know if you know where it's located by US twenty-seven, next to the uh, big Lake Okeechobee. There's a small town there, Clewiston. Got a job there and then opened an office and worked there for two years. Then eventually it wasn't it wasn't working. It was a difficult town, and I don't want to say it officially, but it was. He had. Racism issues and stuff like that, so we had to. I had to move my my children out of there, and my wife at the time. So we how old were two.
1: they by then? By then,
2: how? Old? Oh, uh, Victoria was one, uh, maybe close to two, and Justine was born in ninety six, which was five, maybe five. Wow, yeah, they were starting school and everything, and it was it was a town very very old. Florida, central Florida is kind of a little bit, it's like
1: 100 years behind, the past behind time and, and that's what behind, people understand exactly. how it be
2: Tampa was a better experience and here i worked here and there and ended up now as a hospitalist on my own in two hospitals and that's where we are
1: so I'm from Clewiston, you moved from Tampa and since uh, 2001 you've been here
2: since. yeah,
1: yeah so 19 years. 20 years of your life have been as a physician in this, area. in this area. Dr. Cardenas, I, I do know that migratory processes are different for Cuban and many people have to go through a lot of migratory processes, like me, to get, you know, the green card or or, yeah. or a visa status of that you can work and practice medicine in the United States. If you don't mind asking, anything specific that it's the way they treat Cuban immigrants in the United States? Or I know that during the Mariel, there was also some political implications that allow people to kind of be protected under the system.
2: I mean, my Im- immigration story is not that uh, that florid in that area. But in general, Cubans have had a beneficial immigration policy from the U.S. I mean, not leaving Cuba. Leaving Cuba has been a nightmare because communism does not allow you to leave. That's you know, otherwise. And even so, Cubans are all over the world because we managed to leave. But but once you get here, because Miami was pretty much grown by the Cubans, and Cubans have been in power in Miami for many years, so the migratory policies were a little more beneficial to us than many other people. So I, myself, you know, whoever came through Marielle, we got, the, 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 we got a, um, it wasn't called a green card, it was a W W something, or it was a little card. That had some name. I'm sorry, don't remember. That gave us a total a right to work from the day one, and um, we it actually counted for the for the citizenship. They decided, and, and after six years or so, that that we could opt for citizenship. And in 1987, I became a U.S. citizen. So I didn't have much of an issue with that. But in general, Cubans have had a lot. A benefits because you come on a on a raft and there was the dry foot wet foot policy that as long as you dropped into the into the water there and and touched the ground you could not be sent back Haitians were being sent back other people were sent back but the Cubans they were once you have your wet foot you are in the us and so now things are different I think now it's not like that but Cubans have enjoyed a better, better
1: military uh, process year, than most process. of us.
2: Yeah, and, and uh, work permits and all that from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, it's unfair, but it's, it's you know, reality is life.
1: Let me touch an aspect of what it's like to be a physician in America. Obviously, you had some high-quality residency training and education in Cuba, uh, 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 high-quality education in, in Philadelphia, and then you became a board certified internist. And suddenly the financial situation changes in the United States. Now you have probably a, an income that is in the upper percentile of the careers and jobs in the United States. And I know that you struggled quite a bit when when you got out of Cuba, when you were working as a machinist, but when you set ground in Madrid, it was really devastating seeing your son sleeping on the ground and how that affected your mindset. How, how did it make you stronger what was going through your mind, your soul? Uh, were you closer to God or not? How did it affect your relationship with your wife and your significant others through 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 time? I don't know. Can you explore a little bit into that? Uh,
2: I think in a way, I was lucky to grow up in a situation like that because I grew up more mature. I had a, a better vision of survival in life. In my young years in Cuba, when you were seventh grade, they would send you 45 days every year to the country wow. to work. And it was almost mandatory. It was politically mandatory. It, it was not seen well if you didn't do it. In high school, you, were, you wouldn't pass a grade if you didn't do it. So we had to go work under the, the, the ruling of farmers. And we had goals almost like theirs, picking tobacco, cutting cane, doing things like that. Young kids, young kids. So I was away from my family when I was still, you know, and I was babyish, you know, and I was very close to my parents. So I would suffer tremendously. And then not having this, not having that, even though, you know, by the time I left Cuba, Cuba wasn't so bad as it is nowadays, you know, and I've been back one time. And so... You've been um, once since you left. One time in 40 years. I just—it was just 40 years, a few days ago—and I've been back once. Yes, only once. And I found it, i mean, like three, four years ago—and I found my hometown destroyed. Uh, people totally—you know—they look malnourished and thin, and and really they look way older than their age. I confused some people with their parents thinking that I was talking to the parent and I was actually talking to the son who looked like what his parent would look like, how his father would look like. So it is a, it is a, it's a story of misery and total destruction of a beautiful country and country that was successful in a way and was in the past. And it's a sad, sad, sad story. But it, I think it made me stronger. I even though nowadays, yeah, things have changed and I have a better, much better income, of course, and much easier life. I still appreciate the little things, and I, I really wish. And sometimes I, I could send my, you know, the young people could be given, you know, camps in in countries like that. You know, a, a camp a little bit uh, in the summer in Cuba just to see what you have to do sometimes, you know, you have to take a a shower in cold water, completely cold water. You have to, you know, brush your teeth with your finger, put the toothpaste on the finger, things like that. And sometimes very little toothpaste when there, there might not be soap and you need to take a shower with only water, things like that that the young generations are not used to and they don't know how to survive that and they don't know what they have because they haven't been there when you don't have it. So, I mean, I think in that way, I am thankful to have been maybe in that situation. I grew up without drugs. I never saw anything. I was totally naive when I landed in this country or or arrived in this country. I totally naive about drugs. You know, we were in a party, a little party, and somebody was smoking marijuana offering to me. And I said, no, I have my own cigarettes. You know, I had no idea. I was totally naive about that.
1: Yeah, so, this country definitely has some problems that are derived from capitalism yeah. and abundancy, things that sometimes culturally for me over the last 20 years has been differ- difficult to learn mm-hmm. to deal with, but you just have to accept it and it's not going to change. You do. you do. I do miss uh, Spain.
2: Spain is, you know, and it's not part of this conversation, but I mean, in a personal matter, I do miss because it blends a little bit more with what we grew up with. And yeah, the familiarity, the French friendliness of people, the getting together after class and things like that, not rushing home, the little apartment and not caring for a big TV. But anyway, they have their own problems too.
1: Dr. Cardenas, so after having had graduated in 1991 as a doctor in medicine and general surgery in Madrid... And coming to America, we're talking 30-plus years, right? Yeah. That you've been in medical practice. What do you advise to this new generation of foreign medical graduates that have dreams and desires and hopes and expectations of coming into the the wonderful United States of America? What would you advise them, the few things that they have to have to be successful?
2: The ones that are not here yet, I think, and fortunately, I took it uh, automatically me but I think learning the language ahead of time and I mean and I was smitten when I first heard English when I was little and I wanted to learn that language and I liked the the Beatles and I liked the American music and because you know I grew up hating the Cuban system so I that part of me pushed me away from that and I was into American stuff so I I went to medical school on my own. I would take the bus and go. When I was in the end of middle school in Cuba, you do things like that. Not here. Nobody, no boy like that takes a bus. But I was going to the town next to mine and doing medical. uh, I mean, uh, English language classes. And so I walked into this country pretty much with better English than I have nowadays. You know, that's maybe deteriorated over the years. But that is a major thing. And that is a major obstacle I see for a lot of people who come in that they might know a lot of medicine, but they can't pass those exams because they are poor in the language. So that is an essential thing. And the other one is you need to struggle. You need to fight. You know, the goal is there. And it's, and it's not unattainable. It's there. You need to do it. I did my residency when I was like 38. Or 37 and you can imagine how tough it is to do a residency where they push you around and they sent you to do all the things and you know first year internship you know you got to do everything you know, and all the, the rectal exams you know and I was older than all of them and I had to do it and I had to take it and so people I see a lot of doctors who come in and they've been practicing in, in their country for a while and then they give up, they just give up and they become something else. I mean, I've even seen them doing patient techs, moving patients around and cleaning them and stuff like that, a doctor. And so I think that people should, you know, do it at night or something, take, take English classes, learn well, read books, and go for it again and, 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 and realize your dream. I mean, it's, the residency is tough. And if you're older than a certain age, they won't even take you. And that's another obstacle. You know, uh, last I heard is if you're over 40, they won't even give you a residency. There was a time in Miami that you could work without a residency.
1: Yes, I remember is, that.
2: I don't think you can even do that. But, but Anyway, so that could be an obstacle that's not possible, that you cannot surpass.
1: What's the mindset that you have to have to accomplish all this? What kind of mindset do you have to have? Because I know it plays a, a lot with your personality. Do you think that the no, fact that you I struggle really, as a child made you persevere as an adult?
2: I honestly don't. I've never even thought of that, but I do look back and I see how I had my mind so set into what I wanted to do. Okay. And it's like, I don't know if it was, you know, my parents died only two, three years after I got here. So maybe it was. That hope they had of me, or I don't know, or the family that you feel that you need to protect them, you need to provide. And, you know, me working in a bakery in Miami, even though I gained, you know, my grades there, I earned my rank. You know, I became a second class mechanic, could have become a first class mechanic, but I was thinking, like, I don't want to do this. This is not my career. But, I, you know, I wasn't comfortable. I was uncomfortable that. Like, my mind, I always have been to become a physician and I am working there and yeah, having afternoons free. I work working early mornings till early afternoon. That was enough. I needed to, to reach what I, what I had planned. And I just did it. I'm amazed sometimes when I look back, because if I had to do it again, I think I would weaken. I would weaken maybe, but because nowadays, you know i don't know that i would take all those steps you know i'm i'm a little more tired when it comes to all those crazy things i mean the residency once you pass it you you don't want to think about doing it again it's probably the worst time of the fear. worst 3 years of my life probably was that residency and it I wasn't it. a bad one.
1: I do agree with you. And and my personal case, the second residency training that I did, because I came to the U.S. and I did family medicine and I graduated, became board certified in family medicine. I worked for two years and then I went back to be an intern in emergency medicine. And having had been an attending and going back to be an intern and being mistreated and abused by nurses, techs, paramedics, and you were way below everybody, it was a huge hit on the self-esteem. Absolutely. And I think residency training, the second time around, the first time was discovery, getting to know the, the system. The second one is, was dealing with my self-esteem issues and just putting myself through another degree of education.
2: I feel the pain. I remember the pain. Yes, absolutely. That's why when I reached the end of that residency, 21 years after I had started my medical career, I said, you know, I'm not going to do a, a fellowship. I can't. I I don't have the the perseverance anymore. I, I I just can't. And I would have loved to do something else because you know I I wanted to reach a little further, but that was you know.
1: And sometimes it's okay if you really look back on everything that you have accomplished. I think is more than plenty what you have accomplished uh, I, far.
2: Yeah. I hope the the children follow on the steps and. You, and other people, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I, I always tell them, I'll help you with anything I can. There's examples in the hospital of people. There's now a physician who is a tech at Carolwood. And I keep, every time I see her, I said, you have to do something. You can't just keep doing this. This
1: is yes, young, young person. Well, Dr. Cardenas, it's been awesome to have you over. Despite the fact that I have like 82 days left in our healthcare system, I know that the world is really small and you and I will be having more than one conversation in the future because unless I move to another state, I don't think uh, life is going to split us apart. He has been super kind always, super pleasant to be, interact with. He's one of those attendings that as a consultant, when I call from the emergency department about his private patients and, and about the patients of his colleagues, I have no issues with. And I think for the last three years, three and a half years that I've been at the main campus and the last five years that I've been with the company, I have developed some degree of rapport with you. And and honestly, I thank you for everything that you have done for me. And I'm going to start a new chapter of my life. As you said, you were 38 when you finished. I'm going to reinvent myself now that I'm 42. So I hope that the next 20 years of my career are as fruitful as they have been for you this far. Okay. Thank you so much for for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me and having this opportunity. So to my listeners, call to action. Leave us a review. Reach out to me if you want to be part of the podcast. If you have a special motivational story like the one from Dr. Omar Cardenas, Omar Cardenas, feel free to email me. Email me, tell me your story. What can we learn from you? And this is motivational. The purpose of why we're here is to tell you, no matter the adversity or the circumstances, life for you now is easier than it was for Dr. Cardenas 20, 30 years ago. So if you're going to take action, take massive action now and never give up. So thanks for listening, superstars. We'll stay in touch. Please download and give me a five star review if we deserve it. Leave me a strong, strong, strong comments down at the bottom. And you know, we're here for you. Thank you again. Thanks for listening and we'll be back soon.